Welcome to True Crime Chronicles podcast. I'm Lindsay and this is Mystery Monday episode number three. The case this week focuses on the unsolved case of China Dickus and her stepson Blake Dickus. This case is out of a small town outside of Indianapolis, Indiana with essentially no evidence, motive, or suspects. I do want to kind of give a little bit of a trigger warning. I don't typically do that because true crime is just in general pretty unpleasant and I think people know that going in. But this case does involve the death of a 10-year-old child. So if that's not your thing, I get it. But I did want to mention that. So the death is mentioned because obviously it's a part of the case, but it's not mentioned in graphic detail. But I wanted to put that out there in case that's just not your cup of tea, right? So that being said, this is the case of Blake and China Dickus. Picture a beautiful summer day. Sunny, 83, just nice, right? Beautiful summer. A father and husband kisses his wife, hugs his son, tells them he loves them, and heads back to work after spending his lunch break with them at home, thinking he will see them again after work, not ever imagining the nightmare he would walk into later that day. But who would? Things like this just don't happen there. It's 45 minutes from the nearest biggest city, which is Indianapolis. It's a brand newly built home with the rest of the neighborhood quickly being built up around it. It's a beautiful, safe place to raise your family until it wasn't. Now, China Dickus was born January 22nd, 1980 in Waukegan, Illinois. She was married to Sean Dickus and was stepmother to his 10-year-old son, Blake. They had been married three years and had recently talked about expanding their family with a child of their own. Now, China did not have any children of her own yet, but she was a wonderful stepmother to Blake. Now, over the course of their three-year marriage, China and Blake had developed a very strong bond. She loved him as her own and was known to kind of cater to him a bit. China also had a great relationship with Blake's mother, Christina, and would often go to her for maternal advice. She had even called her one time and asked how to do Blake's hair just right, because even after trying her best, she just could not get it to look the way that mom did. And that is amazing because a lot of times co-parenting like that, especially when a new spouse is involved, does not go so smoothly. Unless you're a Kardashian because apparently they co-parent like a motherfucker, right? Like they are fantastic. But in the real world, that doesn't really happen. But in this case, it did. And all three of them were focused on Blake's best interest. And that was making sure he knew that he was loved and safe and that there was great communication between all of the parents. 
you know, but they all agreed that they loved Blake and they wanted the best for him. So if there was any, you know, kind of bad feelings left over from the divorce, that it didn't come out in their co-parenting. And that is 100% how it should be. But again, not often how it goes. China was also very devout in her faith. She was a dedicated volunteer with her church and had gone on a mission trip to El Salvador earlier in the summer with her husband, Sean. Now, Sean had described China with this statement, quote, that woman was pure and perfect and helped me to become the man that I was for them, you know, meaning his family, for her and for Blake. Unquote there. She was a graduate student, an avid reader, and she had a love for scrapbooking. She was very loved by her family and her friends and was just generally a very good person who wanted to help when she could and, you know, loved her family, loved her stepson, and they were looking forward to a family of their own. Now, Blake Michael Dickus was born February 21st, 1996. And by all descriptions, he was a very happy, loving 10-year-old boy. Blake loved to make people laugh. He was very funny. And he just wanted people to be happy. Blake enjoyed typical 10-year-old activities. Basketball, swimming, riding bikes with friends, and of course video games. I raised four 10-year-old boys and video games are always involved, but... He seemed to have a pretty well-rounded, you know, interest. He liked to be outside. He was friends, swimming, basketball. So, you know, just a very active, normal, well-adjusted 10-year-old. Every year, Blake and his family would go camping at the Tipton Powwow, which is an actual event in Tipton, Indiana. And it features Native American dancing, singing, foods, authentic arts and crafts, traders, and educational seminars and programs. At this event, Blake would dress as a grass dancer to honor all military and his father. Now, I'm going to tell you, I had no idea what the hell a grass dancer was at all. I had to look it up, immediately went to Google. So, A grass dance is a custom of some tribes wearing braided grass in their belts. And this was done before a dance or ceremony could be held on the prairie. The grass had to be stomped down. So this is where many of the movements of the, the grass dance are believed to have originated from. And afterwards, the dancers would tie the grass to their outfits so I don't know if there was any type of Native American heritage in their family line or if there was just a respect for the culture so that I I wasn't able to find out where the you know powwow thing kind of started or why they were into it the way that they were but that was something that they did do every year now, Faith was also also very important to Blake as he attended two different churches, 
one with his father in China, and then one with his mother. He had just finished the third grade and was enjoying his summer break before his fourth grade started. So that brings us now up to July 24th of 2006 and the events that just, I mean, shook an entire community. 12.45 in the afternoon, Sean Dickus comes home for lunch to see China and spend some time with Blake before he was set to go home and go back to his mother's. This had become pretty typical since they had moved into the new home about a month prior. Sean's work was a lot closer, so it was just minutes away from there. So he was able to come home, you know, see them for lunch or if it was just China, if, you know, Blake was in school or at his mother's, and then make it back to his job within the allotted time frame. Now on that day, China was supposed to drop Blake off at his grandmother's house for his mom to pick him up later. And this was the grandmother on his mother's side, so his mother's mother. However, this day, Blake wanted to stay a little bit longer in order to be able to see his dad when he came home at lunch. So Blake and China called his mother, Christina, to see if it was okay if he stayed. She, of course, agreed, and her and Blake decided that they were going to go to the movies later that night and that she would go ahead and get the tickets before she picked him up. Lunch at home went well and was relatively uneventful. Sean left around 1.45 p.m. to return back to work. Now, what happened between 1.45 p.m. and 5.15 is still completely unknown. What we do know is that China never showed up at Blake's grandmother's to drop him off. Many calls from Christina and her mother, so Blake's grandmother, went unanswered. Many calls to Sean also went unanswered. But I'm guessing since he was at work, I don't know what kind of work he did. I think it was maybe like a, a factory work of some type from what I was able to kind of gather. So I don't know how much he would be allowed to have his phone on him on the floor. And this is in 2006 too. Like they didn't quite have the phones like we have now. So I would imagine it was in a locker somewhere. Just he wasn't, you know, able to be gotten hold of on his shift. So now at this point, unable to reach China or Sean and still unsure of why Blake was not dropped off, Christina heads over to their residence to see what was going on. Now, when she enters their neighborhood, as she is pulling up to their street, she sees multiple police cars filling up the street, yellow caution tape around the house, and just worst of all, there is a coroner's van in the driveway. At 5.15, that afternoon, Sean pulls into the 1188 North Aberdeen Drive. It was their new home, right? It was a beautiful four-bedroom, two-and-a-half bathroom house on almost a half-acre lot. Beautiful neighborhood. So he pulls into the garage um, in the Brannigan Woods subdivision. 
He states that he really didn't notice anything unusual or out of the ordinary at first. He did observe the kitchen door that was connected to the garage. You know, the garage, and we open it, it takes you into the house. I would guess maybe off a kitchen, something like that. Or a mudroom. That door was open. But he said even that didn't trigger anything at first. He said oftentimes China would leave the door open or be there in the doorway ready to greet him when he got home. So Sean took off his shoes, as he always did, and then proceeds to walk through the house. But once he got inside, he noticed right away that things just it didn't seem right. And what he finds is not his loving wife, you know, waiting to greet him after work. But instead, he finds an absolute horror scene. Sean walks in to find China's body bloodied with multiple stab wounds. And then he sees Blake. And he sees his body, his sweet little baby boy lying dead on the floor. Now, Blake's autopsy showed he died from stab wounds, blunt force trauma, and asphyxiation due to smothering. Now, what the fuck had happened between the hours of 1.45 and 5.15 that resulted in the horrific deaths of two people, one of them being a young child in what was considered to be a very safe neighborhood. Everyone had nothing but wonderful things to say about China and Blake, and Sean said neither one of them had any enemies of any kind. Now, while the family was completely baffled, the police kind of maybe had an idea of what could have possibly happened in the house that afternoon. Earlier that day, just four houses down from the Dickus residence, a burglary had occurred. And not just a normal, you know, breaking and entering. It was just, it was weird, to be honest. It was just a very odd break-in. The intruder just trashed some rooms and took a few very insignificant items. A high school ring, some bicentennial coins, and a pitcher of lemonade because breaking and entering makes you thirsty. But anything of actual value was left untouched in the house. Now this was just one burglary in a small string string of very odd break-ins that were reported in, again, what was supposed to be a very safe neighborhood. But police say five break-ins with similar circumstances were reported during the summer months of June and July. In all five, nothing of significance was taken. The refrigerator was gone through and they all occurred within a half a mile radius of the Dickus residence. With one occurring just a few houses down the street on the day of the actual murders. All of the break-ins had window screens cut with the same T-shape cut. At the time uh, these break-ins were happening, there was a lot of things going on in their neighborhood and very close by, resulting in a lot of undocumented people being around and having access. 
So the neighborhood that the Dickuses lived in, like I said, it was a new one. So houses were being built up all through the subdivision. So adding to the complexity of this already kind of bizarre case is that many of the homes were still under construction. So there were three separate home builders working in the neighborhood in addition to dozens of different contractors plus all of their crew members. Now, in addition to that, Franklin Community High School was also under construction and being built right down the street with their own contractors and crews. Then, adding to all of the people in and out and around already, the Johnson County Fair was also taking place. So, unfortunately, there was just no way to account for everyone who would or could have had access. And the police have said that they feel like the break-ins are all connected. And if they can solve the break-ins, they can very well solve the homicides. Okay, well, on that statement, uh, that's, that's a pretty big assumption. And a few reasons why. So one is, I don't, I, I just, I don't know that I agree with that. It's a huge leap to break into a house, to go through a refrigerator, take some coins, to brutally murdering two people, one of them being a 10-year-old child. I understand, you know, then the other break-ins, no one was home at the time. But these break-ins, you know, were big news in a small area that hadn't had really any major crime in over 50 years. So... In my opinion, if someone was targeting the family, it could have easily been made to look like one of the break-ins in the area. I also question if the way the screens were cut is a connecting factor. Is this an unusual way to cut a screen? Like, are they more commonly cut in a different pattern? I, I mean, I don't know. To me, I would think, that that's probably a pretty standard way to cut a screen if you're going to try to break in somewhere. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I've never broken in a house. I've never had to cut a screen to try to get in anywhere. But I feel like if I was going to or I did have to, I, I would probably cut it the same way. So I don't know how individual that style is to these break-ins. But, I mean, maybe I am completely wrong. It wouldn't be unheard of. Also, the break-ins only went on during the June and July months. So, why? Could it have been a college student that was home for the summer? Maybe, right? Because it was just during those particular months. Now, all the break-ins occurred during the day. So during normal business work hours when most people are gone at their job. Is that because, you know, a burglar would assume, right, that the houses would be empty then? Or is it because the burglar was a worker in or around the area who was there during the day? And that's when they had access to the homes. I don't think that is completely out of the question at all you know they're working on something they leave for their lunch or they you know leave to go do something I, it didn't sound like it was very 
structured, right? So I definitely could see a worker or someone in the area doing some type of work, being able to notice if someone left a house, if the houses were empty, or just kind of check the neighborhood out a lot more than a random person. Now, could it have been a homeless or a transient person breaking in and taking food, but nothing else of, you know, significance? Maybe, but I feel like that would be pretty out of place in that type of neighborhood. So I don't know that that would be, you know, like a, a viable option, but maybe, right? Because at this point, we don't know. Now, I would also want to know, when did the construction in the neighborhoods stop? Were there any other break-ins once the construction subsided or once certain, you know, home building agencies or groups, companies, I don't really know what you would call it, you know, finished their work and left the neighborhood? Because there were three separate ones, you know, building up the houses in that area. So, I would definitely want to know, once the construction was done, either in general, right, and the neighborhood was built up, were there any more break-ins? Or when any one particular company stopped, were there any break-ins after that? I would definitely want to know that. Now, of course, Sean was going to be looked at very closely as a suspect. I mean, 100%, that's where they're going to start, right? He was the last one to see them. And the first one to find him. Plus, being the father and the husband, he's gonna—he's the closest one to him. So you always start in and build out. But Sean was ruled out pretty quickly through polygraph results and a pretty rock-solid alibi that was backed up by multiple co-workers. Now, in the almost 17 years since these murders have taken place, Police say over 600 tips have come in and thousands of interviews were conducted. Even now, calling this far from a cold case. Police say it's often common to not report a break-in if it seems, you know, like nothing was taken, nothing was disturbed, it didn't really seem like a big deal. But police are asking that if anyone had a break-in around that time or in that area but didn't report it because they felt that it was really nothing worth reporting, whether nothing was taken or nothing important was taken, to report it anyway. Even if the homeowner thought it was nothing important, it could be key to solving this case. Now they are also hoping with the advancements in DNA technology that that could eventually bust this case wide open. Now, not many details of the crime scene were released at all by the police, but some statements kind of caught my attention. The first one is obviously being the DNA comment, that they are hoping with the advancements that could be what solves this case. Now, it's never been released that any DNA was left behind or collected or where the DNA could have came from. Blood, semen, sweat, you know, transfer, etc., whatever. So this leads me to wonder, was there any type of personal 
assault towards China or attempted personal assault. And I think you understand what I mean when I say personal assault. Now, also, oftentimes in stabbing cases, the person doing the stabbing cuts themselves due to the amount of blood and slipperiness involved in it. So it's hard to keep a good grip or a steady grip of anything that is covered in blood. So did they leave blood behind? You know, I would be interested to know too if in and around that time anyone came into an emergency room um, that needed stitches because of a cut, whether it was a small one or a substantial one. I think that's definitely possible. Uh, my idiot ex-husband one time was messing around and, you know, had cut himself with um, like a foldable knife or retractable or something. And he ended up cutting his finger almost all the way off. So I know when you're messing around with knives, which you should not do, but, you know, that can definitely be a factor because once blood gets on your fingers or on the the grip of it, it definitely makes it slippery and hard to hold on to. Now, several things with the break-in theory bothers me. In my opinion, it is a huge leap to break in homes for pitchers of lemonade to breaking in and possibly, you know, a personal assault or a personal assault attempt and then brutally murdering two people, again, one of them being a child. Now, okay, granted, maybe whoever broke in was not expecting anyone to be home, but why not just run out at that point, especially if the place of entry was the side garage door. I mean, it was open. Why would you not just dip the fuck up out of there and try another house or try another day if you're worried, you know, they were going to call the police? I, I don't understand, you know, breaking in, you find her. Now, I could not confirm this, but I, I had read that she was, you know, upstairs folding laundry in the bedroom but I could not find additional sources that confirmed that. So as a possibility, you know, she's upstairs doing laundry, folding clothes in the bedroom. You know, Blake was downstairs. So I would think if you're breaking in, you see that you have a clear pathway to get out through the door you came in. Why would they not get the fuck up out of there? I just, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of finding a hard time making sense of that but I'm not a breaker in her either so maybe that's maybe he panicked I don't know so one thing I thought too was you know maybe they had been watching the house and they saw Sean leave thinking either the house was empty or that China was home alone and they just did not expect expect excuse me lord did not expect Blake to be there and so possibly maybe this person started to assault China before realizing that someone else was in the house. But again, I go back to why kill them, especially in this case. I mean, the only reason I can think of is because they know who you are. They can point you out 
they can recognize you. And maybe even, you know, they didn't know who you were prior to this attack, but, you know, if your face wasn't covered or, you know, I don't know, because you didn't want to draw attention walking down the street in the middle of July with, you know, a balaclava on your face. I don't know. Maybe he put it on when he got in the house. I don't really know what happened. But to me, you know, especially a kid, if you're going to take the time instead of just leaving, but to chase down this child and kill them, there has to be a reason. And I just feel like the only reason would be because they could identify you. And nothing was taken from the house. At least nothing that was released. So were the weapons brought into the home by the killer? Did he use something that was already in the house? Did he find, you know, a weapon of convenience? I don't know. None of that obviously has been released. So my other thought was, was there someone who was in that neighborhood that was stalking China? They had only been in their new home for a month, but it just feels targeted to me and I know that there were other break-ins you know I I do know that and they were within the immediate area but they were very different than this break-in so uh, I don't know and again I feel like it's targeted because the only reason I feel like you know you would kill them would be because they know you let's just say even okay they break in, they break into Assault China, they see the husband leave, and they don't think that the son is there. And, you know, they assault her, and maybe, you know, they kill her because they're afraid she'll tell on them. But why the 10-year-old? The he, I just, I don't know, I don't know. I keep going back to that. You know, or was this just an absolute freak incident as a result of them being home, when someone broke in and instead of leaving they panic and just fucking kill everybody like this is actually the police's official theory but again to me I just don't connect those dots but I don't have all the information and the evidence that the police department has access to so clearly they know more than what I do about this case but that theory just, it sits funny with me. Now, the police department have asked anyone with information, no matter how small or unimportant you might think it is, to still call the Franklin Police Department. That number is 317-346-1142. You can remain anonymous by calling 317-346-1100. There's currently a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction for the person or persons responsible for the murders of Blake and China Dickus. And so that's all I have for this case. Thank you for joining me for Mystery Monday and, you know, listening to the story about China and Blake. It's tragic and unnecessary and confusing I think more so you know than anything else it just does not make sense 
So Mystery Mondays will be every week, typically focusing on unsolved cases, missing person cases, or cold cases. Every other Saturday will be a Solved Saturday episode. These are going to be longer cases. They typically involve trials, appeals, convictions. It's more of a deeper dive into the case. And like I said, these are going to be solved cases or technically solved cases in some instances. So I would love for you to join me for Saturdays also. This past Saturday's case was the technically solved case of teenage mother Danielle Baker and the familicide of her and her entire family, which was three out of her four children. And at first glance of this case, it seems pretty cut and dry. But as you get into it, it's anything but. There's child support, money, IRS, drug dealers, missing drugs, shady police, suspect witness statements, upset exes, and unidentified DNA profiles. So there's a lot going on in that case. But, and that's up now if you want to check it out. And if you made it this far, thank you so much for hanging in there with me. Have a great and wonderful day, and I hope to talk with you again soon.